Welcome back to episode nine of the Can I Tell You Something podcast. Today we have an episode about some human wildlife encounters throughout the oceans around the world. Yes, more specifically, the orca, quote unquote, attacking human ships encounters off the Iberian Peninsula, I believe. And then we will get into a story, um, a rather sad story, actually, about an orca from the waters in the Salish Sea near Seattle. And so for people that have seen the documentary Blackfish or know those sorts of stories, this really builds off of a lot of the knowledge that was brought to the forefront throughout those uh, documentaries. So without further ado, let's get into what's going on with the orcas out in the world right now. Yes. So Brendan has prepared a fact sheet for you all. So we will be referencing some research to kind of really understand what is happening with the orcas. But then we're also going to throw in, or more specifically, I'm going to throw in my philosophy around all this and just being such a lover of animals and nature. I have very, very strong beliefs surrounding what's going on. And so whether you believe in the same thing as I do or not, you're going to get my opinion. Folks. We have a great podcast. At least we think so. And we hope you do too. But we are also the only two people on this podcast, so we could be a little delusional about this take. And because of that, we're looking for viewers like you to tell us, tell it to us straight. Are we a good podcast or are we not? We want to interact with you. We want your opinion. Your opinion. You can find us at the Can I Tell You Something podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, where you'll hear us talk about things like, well, I don't know, do plants have feelings? What is the Myers-Briggs personality test? Who is Steve G? And what do you think about the Barbie movie? All that and more at the Can I Tell You Something podcast. I have a bottle. I also have... An orca card, which for people that know about transit in the Seattle area, all of our transit cards, they're called orca cards. So I thought it was very appropriate to include this with our message in a bottle. We're staying very on theme here, as you can see. And so as I undo this message right here, it seems that I have a bunch of notes that document what's been going on throughout the world. Did your show notes just float here in I, a message in a bottle? I believe so. Whoa. <laughs> so if we're going to start from the top, and the top being the Iberian Peninsula, a lot of you might be asking, as I asked myself, what is the Iberian Peninsula? Where is she? Where is she? So it is the peninsula that... Portugal, and Spain occupy. So it's right where Europe meets Africa. There's a little gap where ships can go through. And these orcas have been hanging out on the Atlantic Ocean side or the western side of that peninsula. I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty positive that this is a really important trade route. Yeah, it would be. So um, it's like very highly trafficked with boats. Exactly. This is your way of getting from the Mediterranean out to the oceans of the world. And it's a, it's a pretty narrow channel that you end up going through at one point. And this is right around where a lot of these encounters have been happening. And so there was a fantastic study 
And so I, I have, I'll put this up on the screen for uh, those interested because it's kind of a hard infographic to read, but it shows all of these different documented whale encounters over, I think it's a period of time of about a year. And this study came out in 2021. So keep in mind, this study is two years old. And they were noticing a big spike in whale encounters, and more specifically, orcas that would swim up to and damage boats. So one of the interesting bits of this specific timeline with these orca encounters is that it coincides with the COVID-19 pandemic. Because when COVID happened, human mobility was constrained in a way that it hasn't been in a really long time. And I remember hearing on NPR, actually, that it was a prime time to study whale behavior because there was less noise pollution in the water. And so something we'll get into a bit later is how, do you, how, are you, how can you be an orca ally, <laughs> which is an actual Seattle Times article title. Oh, I love that. But two of the biggest threats to orcas in the Pacific Northwest are depleting san salmon populations and noise pollution. Because when boats move in the water, they're really noisy and whales communicate through noise in the water. It, if you look more into this, Whales are able to communicate over hundreds of miles in the water. And if you actually look up sperm whales in particular, they can communicate over a thousand miles. Right. And so if there's too much noise pollution, you're essentially cutting off pod communications from one another or maybe just single whales from one another. And so it's a huge isolation, which is really, really concerning. And if we know anything about how slowing down or stopping communication works with humans, that's when human societies start to dwindle and die out really quickly. And so that ability to communicate between pods or within pods is really important for these whales. And that's why when it comes to recreational whale watching or commercial whale watching, there are explicit laws in how close boats can get to whales. But those are recent laws. Those are recent Unfortunately, laws. Unfortunately, those came into act after over, I think it was 250 orcas were captured in the Salish Sea and most of them died just in that capture alone. They didn't even, they were, they were captured to go to aquariums and SeaWorld and stuff like that. And most of them didn't even make it because those captures were so violent. So out of that came those laws. And that was in the sixties and seventies. The, the one good piece of news is that the laws are actually getting stronger too. Um, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington just signed uh, a law this past May that increases that distance from 400 yards during uh, during their, I think, prime whale watching season to 1,000. But it won't take place for a couple of years and as laws work. We will get into the exact reason why that law has come into place unfortunately. Um, but to be on a less cynical side, I do want to say I'm not against whale watching in general because I have done it in multiple locations and I've, I've had such a wonderful experience with captains who are like dedicated their lives to these whales and they know exactly what they're doing. And I've been able to see whales and it was truly a life-changing experience for me when you see how just like beautiful and big these creatures are 
And I was actually in a boat one time where they put the the thing that captures their sound. And I heard them talking to each other. And in that moment, I remember it was early in the morning. I was with my dad. And it was just, I think about that moment a lot because it was so life-changing. So I am not against cutting that off altogether. But there are horrible, horrible companies out there that do not care about the whales. They just care about making money. And unfortunately, that leads it up to the consumer to decide where and how to go whale watch. I I think that what you're saying too, really, it aligns with my belief that people that see nature start to care more about nature. And so I agree, like whale watching, if you compare seeing whales in their natural environment to seeing them in captivity, 100% they should be in their natural environment. I mean, there's stats that I was pulling up in research. Whales in their natural environment live 90 plus years. They die around 50 years in captivity. So their life I actually saw a, a, a stat that was much lower. It was like 30 years in captivity. That's And that yeah. I guess that could be dependent on what age they were when they were captured. Yeah. I do know that those 250 orcas that I spoke about earlier when they were captured, they were the majority of them were under the age of two or three. So they were, they were little and they were all separated from their mothers. And we know that, like I said, they live in pods. They stay with their families their entire life. Yeah. And it's interesting too, like in the language that they talk about here, they, they talk about this Iberian Peninsula group as like a subculture. Like they have regionality to whales. I've heard so many people online talk about like trying to decode what whales are saying to one another um and it's always fascinating because then there's the idea of dialects that come into play could a whale from the pacific northwest speak to one from the iberian peninsula i don't know who knows i i really like that kind of talk though and we'll get into as we get into the episode um intelligence of animals and how that's perceived with humans but that is something Language is something that we can relate to. Even though, of course, we don't fully understand it. We have our ideas and our theories. But I think that's really cool that we can at least identify that and use that as a point of awe and respect for these animals. And so for those that aren't familiar with kind of how orcas work socially, I think that the best way to describe them, and my favorite term for them is uh, so th- this is a term that comes out of the Seattle rugby um, club name, the Sea Wolves, which sea wolves are orcas. So they operate in these pods or packs and they hunt together. And so what's really interesting about these encounters is that they are very coordinated between orcas. We have a lot of evidence that shows how well they can learn behavior and pass on knowledge to future generations so they're highly coordinated and what they're going for is they're going for the rudder of the boat can you define what the rudder of a boat is is it that so i once again similar to the iberian peninsula i had no idea what the rudder was exactly i didn't know if it was the spinny bit or whatever it is but i figured it out and i have a little another additional graphic right here the rudder for those of you that aren't nautical navigators is the little fin on a boat that helps it change direction in the water. 
Oh, so when you're turning the steering wheel on a boat, you're mm-hmm. just, you're moving around the rudder. Exactly. The, gotcha. The big old wheel on those pirate ships, rudder. And you say it looks like a fin? It looks a little bit like a fin. Do you think that's perhaps why they're so attracted to it? So That's an out there theory, I suppose. It's, but. A, it's a really good question. So the there are two theories that we're going to get into. One is it's just a phase mom. As I like to call it in, in the more, I guess, academic way of describing it is that there's a theory that these orcas are exhibiting this behavior as a fad because a bunch of adolescent orcas are conducting these attacks. So it's, I mean, it's vandalism or tomfoolery for they're some just, of them. They're up to no good. They're they're, up they to need no to defy good. their parents. They're getting a little, uh, they got some pent up energy that they just don't know what to do with. Yeah. And the, the arguments in favor of that uh, say a couple things. One, an orca has never killed a human in the wild. The only time orcas have killed humans is when... At SeaWorld. Yeah, in captivity. Well-deserved. Mm-hmm. So watch Blackfish if you want to know more about that. It's, it documents it beautifully. Um, but it's incredibly sad, too. So warning for that. The other thing that they cite in this theory is that when a lot of these orcas were being taken from the wild and their natural habitat, humans were employing incredibly violent methods and during that, there is, or no, none of the orcas attacked humans. And so that raises into question, where does a human-centric, like, where does that human interaction start to come into play with this particular pot of orcas? Because the only interaction that orcas as a species have really had with humans is negative. Yeah. Because other than when humans capture them, which you're right, it is very violent. And I I really don't want to show a video in -hmm. this, but I have seen it and it's mortifying. Other than that, we don't touch them. We only, like, you can see them on, you can go on, like, boating tours and whale watching stuff and you can see them. But the only physical contact that humans have had with them is negative. So why wouldn't they hold on to that generationally. Yeah. The this is where we get into the second theory that this is more of a coordinated act of revenge against humans and this is I I want to acknowledge that this theory if you look at how people are documenting these I will say quote unquote orca attacks it really falls in line with what western civilizations call attacks it's destruction of property it's threats to human life but that's it that that doesn't take into account what an orca's perspective is in these attacks and because of that it's you can't just say that they're attacks because humans are in danger because i don't know humans went out into the middle of the ocean with little boats that we built what did we expect would happen Exactly. And, but the reason why that the, there is this theory of a coordinated attack is they hypothesize that there was an orca mom that had an incredibly negative interaction with humans, caught in a net, you know, some sort of gash, whatever it is. So I think it, 
to go back mm -hmm. to give a little bit more context of these let's call them incidents yeah. instead of attacks I, that's why we've been saying quote unquote because attacks feels like the very incorrect word to use so let's say it's too conclusive for what we know exactly let's just go with incidents incidents yeah orcas are matriarchal i believe in their pods and so the mother or the eldest matriarch of this specific pod that started this has significant bodily damage and it yes. looks like it either came from a boat could be like a fishing spear could be anything but it is definitely human caused. And the other thing I, I want to add to illustrate this point too is that orcas are incredibly intelligent. Like I, every bit of research points to them being much more intelligent than we ever anticipated. And that's a very like a Western perspective. Oh, they're smarter than we thought. Whereas I think that there are a lot of communities and groups of people that say, yeah, of course. Like, that's what I was going to say. Like, are you dumb? Of course <laughs> they are. And this is kind of when I said my opinions are going to shine through is I have this belief that every living creature on our planet is intelligent. And I don't think that you can compare animals intelligence to human intelligence because the way that we go about things in our consciousness is very different than the way other beings go about it. And so when people say, oh, like, did you know pigs are smart? They can play chess. Like, why are we having pigs pl play chess? And then that's how we distinguish that they're intelligent. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That it really, really pisses me off. And so to say, for, for that to be a, oh, we need to protect these animals because they're intelligent. No, we need to protect these animals because we're the ones hurting them in the first place. It we need to undo our wrongs. It's, uh, the, what you said there, it's like judging a pig's intelligence by its ability to play chess, right? It, I encourage people that are, are skeptical about this belief to look into a couple things. One is the, just look on Wikipedia, the, I forget the name of the test, but where animals have to recognize themselves in a mirror and if you read through that Wikipedia page, it shows you what animals pass that test. And it's been a widely used test of, okay, we can confirm some sort of sense of self-awareness. But throughout it, they just say things along the lines of this is for visually centric creatures. This is not by any means an accurate or like a generalizable test for other animals. It has a very specific use case. And it's just more interesting to see when it does happen, but when it doesn't, it doesn't really say anything. But, um, hold on, I want to find a quote here. It's the one where I'm like, you can't judge the intelligence of a fish when asking it. Oh, if you, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will go its whole life believing it's stupid. Exactly. That's a quote that I hold on to a lot. And I think it really sums up mm -hmm. what we're getting at here yeah and then the the chess thing too that's another fun deep dive chess has been used as a metric of intelligence in in western civilizations for the past like 150 years it's, and in, why why would we be mm -hmm. let's go back to the pigs here yeah why would humans use 
that as a metric. Because when we look at pigs, which I love, by the way. <laughs> Piggly Wigglies. What I like to talk about is like how clean they are, how they like separate their pig pens or whatever area they're forced to live in into separate rooms and how they have bathrooms and bedrooms. Like, isn't that more fascinating? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's much more fun to open yourself up to animals being smart. I'm just going to say it. You start to notice things and you're like, I'm just scratching the surface of whatever's going on in their noggins. Exactly. So the back to the, the orca bit of this, the theory is that this mother is teaching people in this pod how to attack boats. Not people, orcas. I mean, orcas. <laughs> um, yes. Her... her- her pod. Her fellow ladies and gents. Her her fellow little sea puppies. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. They are sea puppies, aren't they? And so one of the things, or one of the reasons why it's particularly interesting that they go after the rudder is when the rudder of a boat is damaged, it cannot move in any specific direction consistently. And so what I was finding in these articles that were showing up was that once that rudder is damaged, these boats have to be rescued. The people on them need to get evacuated. They're essentially stuck and so, where they are. Yeah. And so this is where I want to show the first video. Unsurprisingly, this video is titled Orcas Attack Boats Near Spain. Boo, lame. Boo. It's an encounter. We don't really know what's fully going on, according to science right now. I could understand why someone would throw that label on it. But this is what it looked like. And this is from Reuters, so it's a collection of footage. So for those of you who can't see, there's some people on a boat that are kind of looking over the edge, and it's pretty calm water. And the boat doesn't seem too big either. I would say around 50, 60 feet long. And so now you're seeing as the light goes down, kind of some whales going up and down. And they're right next to the boat mm -hmm. and probably directly under, obviously. And now they're pumping water out of the boat as the boat is being rescued by what I would assume are the equivalent of like a Coast Guard. So effectively, that boat was sinking. Yeah, I believe so. And do we know, was this a fishing boat or just... Do we know who was on it or what it was they were a sailboat. doing? Okay, so just a recreational yeah. boat, I'd assume. Mm -hmm. So most likely the boat wasn't doing anything harmful necessarily. Yeah. Of course, I don't want to speak out of turn because I wasn't there. I don't know. Um, but that's interesting that maybe wrong place, wrong time. Orcas decided, hey, you know what? These want they smell a little funny. Let's get them, boys. So the the description for this, to add some details, says... Also, you'll see killer whales everywhere. Okay, can I yeah. quick talk about that? Killer whales, as a term to refer to orcas, is so, so upsetting to me. Mm -hmm. Because when we put that negative label on it, it makes you fear them. It makes you say, oh, these are the mean guys that eat the good guys or whatever. Okay, if you understand how nature works, then you know that an animal has to eat another animal to survive. Yeah. Why is that a bad thing? Why? Okay. 
Listen up, folks. Why do killer whales, aka orcas, get a better rep than dolphins do? Dolphins are little creepers. They are creepers. They are rapists. They are mean. They attack. Yeah. Dolphins are... But why are they the symbol of, like, little girls' necklaces? And orcas aren't? Make it make sense. They are not killer whales. They're orcas. I... I'm right there with you. Thank so, you. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, orcas, so the description is orcas, and I am, I'm censoring this so we can make a statement. They are orcas. Um, orcas severely damaged a sailboat off the coast of southern Spain, breaking its rudder and piercing its hull, and adding to dozens of orca attacks on vessels recorded so far this year off the Spanish and Portuguese coasts. And so this was posted May of this year. Okay. Um, and before this was posted, allegedly dozens of incidents had already occurred. Exactly. And so the, I, I was able to look into the research that was done and published in 2021, which was a fantastic read, might I add. Um, but I have a few really interesting pieces of information. One is a direct quote that says, inspection of underwater parts further revealed teeth rakes on the keel, bow, and rudders, confirming the orcas were engaging in physical contact with the vessels. So for those of you that have seen the the Blackfish documentary, the teeth raking that orcas do is like a well-known and documented behavior, and it's like a kind of a big old middle finger, like, roughing someone up type thing it's like breaking someone's nose like it's it doesn't do they do it to each other do you know? some, in captivity they do okay that so, was one of the issues is like some of those orcas that were in captivity were getting like raked by other ones so it's essentially an act of aggression without escalating to deathly violence exactly um then the other interesting bit is that the attacks, so they, in analyzing all of these encounters, they said that they occurred when ships moved between three and 10 knots with uh, around an average of six knots. And what's interesting, though, is that the studied orca subpopulation can move at 7.2 knots for 30 minutes when hunting. And, wow. And so the, the duration of these incidents is at that 30 minute mark for a lot of them. And so it shows at least to me and and really I don't want to be like misquoting this if if someone knows better about orca research please correct me but to me it shows that it is a hunting like behavior at least socially that these orcas are exhibiting at least instinctually. Yeah, and I don't want to say hunting as in they're hunting humans. I want to say it is hunting as in like the social interaction, the way that they move and that's why it's really interesting that they go after the rudder so they can immobilize the boat and then um they're one of the encounters talks about they broke the rudder and then the they were the two younger orcas broke the rudder and the big one starts smashing the hull so it's immobilize and pierce it it is incredibly it's efficient. Oh, it's, it, it is. is the most efficient way to take out a boat. To me, going back to the intelligence rant, that shows me that they're not just intelligent, they are genius. Because if they've unfortunately had to deal with a high 
volume of boats their entire life and generations past lives, then they would have enough exposure to understand how a boat works. Yeah. Without absolutely necessarily being quote unquote told or shown. So they've identified the parts that make the boat move and steer. And they took that out. Mm-hmm. Good on them. Yeah. They're Good like, on them. That weird little fin. Goodbye. And okay, that does make me go back to what I said in the beginning of this episode was that it looks like a fin. Mm-hmm. And something tells me that that's more significant than it's leading on. I, I think that, so if we think about how humans think and we can abstract it pretty quickly and I think step close to the mind of Norica, the stuff that we create as humans often imitates nature to some extent. And for good reason. The reason why that rudder exists the way it does is, guess what? Little fishies, little whales. We're imitating them. They got little rudders too. So the, I mean, moving through water is moving through water. Anything that does it has to do it in a somewhat similar way. And so they're probably identifying that is the equivalent of whatever steers or helps move. In the way that it helps steer them. mm -hmm. And so if they get rid of it, then it can't steer. So that must be the way, or not must, it may be the way that they've identified what it does because they can identify it on themselves. Potentially, Which shows yeah. that they're self-aware. Oh, dun, dun, dun. They are intelligent. <laughs> Take that, you idiots. And the the quote, so, I mean, and keep in mind, this was published two years ago in the attack or the encounters that we are more so talking about happened this year. But there's this quote that says, we cannot discard that more individuals are going to learn this new behavior interacting with the vessels and that probably the situation is going to aggravate. So they wrote it out that, yeah, there's a good chance that this will start happening more and more. And this was two years? Two years ago. Before it actually happened. And that's where the the COVID part of this theory, I think, is just fascinating because at least my educated guess here is that with COVID, a lot of places that whales would naturally live were now available to, to live in. Like they were able to move to places that they felt comfortable moving to more easily. And then as we leave COVID, more people are starting to return to those places. And it seems like probably the first time that a lot of these wildlife populations were given a breath of fresh air from human encounters. And I think that the orcas don't want to give up the space that they've been given. That's my general feeling. I mean, think about other wildlife and when people encroach their space, they feel threatened and they want to protect it. Like it's, it's right. very common. It does seem like, um, a protection sort of emotion that I'm reading from this as well. And I didn't know about the COVID um, implications, which I think is really fascinating because we know in other parts of the world, I think it was like in Italy, the dolphins returned to the canals where people weren't, um, what is it? Boating. Boating. Boating around. around. Yeah. And that was fascinating to see. So that probably happened in so many places around the world that's why i feel like what is happening here with the orcas is so justified and i would not be surprised if other species 
perhaps even on land, started doing the same thing. Because yeah. to me, it's about damn time. It's, I think that, I mean, if, if anyone's heard the soothing voice of David Attenborough, you, you, you already get where I'm going with this, but we exist in a balance with nature. As, as we are the most deadly and dangerous animal in the world right now, we also need to realize that at the end of the day, if we don't have water, we will die. If we don't have food, we will die. If we overfish, overhunt, overextend the natural resources that we're using, we will all cease to exist. There will be a mass extinction. That, that, that is just what's going to happen. And the question is whether or not we, we will exist on the other side of whatever happens. And so, you know, it is a human-centric idea to say that we should preserve ourselves. But, but that's an instinct, and I think every living being feels that to an extent. I don't think that's wrong. But I think that it's important to remember when it comes to protecting, like, it, it, I think it's a bit difficult to motivate people to say, like, it's worthwhile protecting this animal. But I would argue that the way you do anything, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And so if you're not willing to protect animals, then where are you with trees? Where are you with ecosystems? Where are you? There are so many other things that are implicated with that. And we need to remember that at the end of the day, Mother Nature will win, no matter what. In some way. And it... it at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter if we are there to see it or not, because the earth doesn't care. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of like that in a weird, twisted way. I know that I am a human, not being fond of humans, and I, I've always been that way. Yeah. It makes me think about the way that people often personify Mother Earth as essentially getting back at humans through climate change disasters. Like excessive flooding, fires, temperature, stuff like that. And I see that as a really similar example of how the orcas are fighting back. It's no different. It's, it's the same emotion the orcas are feeling that I think our earth is feeling. It's all connected. And for humans to be so spiteful in the middle of it and angry at the orcas and like you said, the killer whales, it's not okay. Like... Why are people so upset that this is happening? Like, how is this a surprise? Because to me, it seems so obvious that something like this would happen. If you like what you've heard so far, be sure to follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Can I Tell You Something Podcast. That is Can I Tell You SMTH Podcast. Thank you. So the story that I wanted to get into that has made national headlines in the last week is the Orca Tokate which was an orca that was taken in her youth from the Salish Sea in Washington and brought to the Miami Aquarium to sit in a tank by herself for over 50 years. I found an article on the Seattle Times called Orca Tokate's Necropsy Shocks Lummy Nation as it works to bring remains home. And so I'm just going to read some excerpts from this article to give some background of what's going on um, following 
Togate's death. The death of Tokate, the southern resident orca, on Friday in Miami was a shock to those who had been working to return her to her home waters in the Pacific Northwest after 53 years in captivity. And the shocks would continue as a necropsy got underway just hours after the whale's death. And that necropsy is just the animal version of autopsy, by the way. Tokate's body was trucked that evening from Florida to the University of Georgia, where it was cut into pieces and placed in 20 50-gallon barrels and the larger bones put in bins with the goal of using them to make castings for multiple displays of her skeleton. Incineration of the remains would have been the next step. But on Saturday morning, the office of the U.S. Senator Maria Cantwell had tried to slow down the process and requested the body be kept as intact as possible to respect the wishes of the Lummi Nation. It all happened very quickly. There are still some questions that need to be answered, said Tony Hilaire, chairman of the Lummi Nation, which has worked for decades to return Togate to her home waters. It was a shock that we were not even consulted. Since then, the nation has decided cremation, after all, would be the best way to return Togate, bringing her ashes home by plane. They want answers. They shared their hearts with us. That is what was traumatic for them, too. The decision was also made in part because of the extensive dissection of her remains. We don't want her sitting anymore like that. Above all else, we want to take care of her spirit. I struggled with it, that feeling that we need to fight, to be angry about this. We need to set her down and take care of her. The timing of the cremation and return of Togate's remains has yet to be determined. But some arrangements are underway. A small group of Lummi Nation tribal members will go to the university to beat drums following Tokate's cremation, and Lummi Nation elder Raynal Morris will carry her ashes home on a plane. Once the orca's ashes arrive, a large group from the Lummi Nation will escort her home. Cultural leaders will then decide how to put her to rest. And since then, there was a public celebration of life that was held for her on the San Juan Islands. And um, the thing that the Lummi Nation really, really wanted to leave people with, instead of dwelling on this just horrendous death and mistreatment of her body, was, let's talk about what we remember about her. Instead of carrying anger in our hearts, we want to carry what she taught us about unity and bringing us together. And I thought that was really beautiful. This story, when it came out, of her death was so gut-wrenching, especially for people who live in the Pacific Northwest in general have probably heard about the Lummi Nation wanting to bring Tokate back to the Salish Sea for years. I believe that they started these efforts back in the 1980s. This is how long this specific endeavor has been going on. And this is especially important because she was the very last orca in captivity. She was the last one left from those 270 orcas that were captured in the Pacific Northwest that I spoke on earlier between 1962 and 1976. So fortunately, now none remain in captivity. But it's so, so disheartening that 
she was so close to being brought home. So close. And she died just days before that was going to happen. And it will be interesting to see what killed her. Because it most likely wasn't old age. Like you said, these animals in the wild can live really, really old. Up to 90. Her mother, who still lives in the Salish Sea, is alive. In the pod that she was taken from. So put that into perspective. She would have been reunited with her family that still exists. And now she doesn't. And this stupid, stupid, stupid Miami Aquarium just thought that they could cut up her body and nothing would happen? That's the weird part to me. Is they house this beautiful, beautiful creature in a really, really small tank. She dies, and they see nothing wrong with that. To give a little more perspective, I want to play a video that the Seattle Times produced that gives a little more context and some voice from Lummi Nation members to really understand the true tragedy of Tokate's death. Almost five decades of being away from your family, if you can only imagine. Tokatai's family still lives here in the Salish Sea. We really relate to uh, what the whale's going through. The taking away of our culture, our history, our language, our values, and the breaking up of our families. You know, that happened to us. And you look at her, that happened to her too. She was taken away from her family. All the other ones that were captured during that time are all gone now. And that was just the excerpt of a longer video, I believe six or seven minutes, that I will link in the show notes for you to watch if you're interested, where you'll actually get to hear from both the Lummi tribe and also the man who captured her. And he's quite an interesting person. I think that... I I remember... Watching, or I yeah, I remember when I first watched Blackfish. It was, I think, the first time that I felt. Um, it was the first time I felt rage about this sort of stuff, and I didn't. I I almost felt like uh, uncomfortable with how I felt. It was very difficult for me to to process it was tough too i think because i felt like in among the people i knew i was it was difficult to find people that understood what i was feeling but i mean there's one thing that is true is that it makes me feel just a level of like existential rage. I don't know how else to describe it because I, I mean, anyone that's ever 
had an animal interaction. You look in the eyes of whatever you're interacting with and you see that they respond to you. They see you, they hear you. Something about what they do acknowledges that you exist to them. And there is this darker side where humans have become, I think, so entranced with that proximity to animals that they'll do anything to manufacture it over and over again. Turn it into a commodity of sorts. Well, and that's what it is. You know, I went to SeaWorld as a kid and plenty of aquariums in general if we're just going to stay focused on sea life. And as a child, you're just excited to be near an animal you've never seen before. You're just excited to be in that splash zone because that's all a rage. You don't actually know why that animal's there or how they got there or if they're happy. And that's what's really unfortunate is these amusement parks and aquariums, they rely on business from parents for their children. This is for children. And you can't blame them. You can really only blame the horrible, horrible people who captured these animals in the first place. And those companies that bought these animals. And I agree, the, the Blackfish documentary is, it's a really difficult watch. But I also think it's pretty essential to understand this issue. And I'm really happy that in the past probably decade, people aren't so fond of SeaWorld anymore. But now it's deeper than that. It's beyond SeaWorld. Let's look at aquariums, zoos, even some light, like wildlife sanctuaries. Animals should not live in captivity, I believe, under any circumstance. We were talking about this earlier when some aquariums will say, oh, they're a rehabilitation aquarium, or they're a wildlife sanctuary. And it really makes me wonder how genuine that is, because specifically at the Seattle Aquarium, they kind of put up this guise that they are saving these animals. Like, oh, if, if we weren't here, all of these animals will die. And then you go and you see that so many of the animals living there were bred in captivity. How's, how does that work? That was actually an excuse that the Miami um, Aquarium used with Tokate. Was that, well, we can't release her because she's injured. At, at one point she was because she was, had to perform every single day of her life. Oh, we can't release her because she won't know how to fish in the wild. She won't know how to survive. And for me, I just call bull to that. It feels like such an empty excuse. Because to me, bred in captivity or not, in which Tokate was not, all animals have an instinct within them to survive. They might struggle, not saying it's going to be perfect when they're let back. But at the end of the day, that is where 
that is the only place that they can truly be themselves and thrive. And I know it has to be done correctly, reintroducing animals that have been injured into their natural habitat isn't easy. There's a structure to it. I get that. Not saying get rid of that. I'm just saying that you can't use it as an excuse to house animals to make money because that's what it comes down to. And it's so obvious that it just, it just boils down to making more money. I think it's important to, to remember that when, when being critical of these things is where, where does money play into it? And then ask yourself, is viewing nature a commodity? Or is it a privilege? Or is it a privilege? And think, think about the National Park Service, right? To enter a park, the cost is much, much less than an amusement park. But what do they have to do there? They have to maintain the human spaces within a place that is not supposed to have humans. That costs some money. So just your little park fee to go to a national park, it's being used to do things like build trails, mm -hmm. to be able to study wildlife. And if, if these places really are sanctuaries too, I mean, think about the impact of nursing a few otters versus making sure that a river is healthy. I want to go back to talking about specifically wildlife sanctuaries because there are so many out there that do a lot of good. And I would love to be a part of one someday, in all honesty. But the difference is, those are private. You can't pay to go see those animals. They are held in isolation for the sole purpose of rehab to release them back to their wild. Back to the wild. Whereas zoos and aquariums, you have to purchase a ticket to get in. That's where it comes into play. That's where I get skeptical. Because if you have to spend a pretty penny to watch an animal do a trick, then it's obvious that that animal is there against their will and being used as a commodity. It's, I think what's where people will likely go from hearing thoughts like that. And I think probably where I went when I first met you, when I hear thoughts like that is, so what, I can't see animals anywhere. I can't see them in the zoo without feeling bad. I can't see them at the aquarium without feeling bad. I, and here's, here's my counterpoint. No, you can't. <laughs> here's my counterpoint to that is, yeah, you, you could go to the zoo or the aquarium, but what you're seeing is, is a display. It's a spectacle. I, this might be a bit much for some people to know, but at world's fairs in history, they have put humans on display as examples of a primitive wild culture. Think about that. If it's not right to do that with humans for a variety of reasons. Hopefully very 
obvious reasons, then it shouldn't be too difficult to see how that extends to nature. Nature is not there for your spectacle, entertainment, and amusement. And in fact, I would say that some of my favorite nature encounters have been done through videography, through nature documentaries. Those people, like, if you've ever been able to see some behind the scenes of those, oh, it's, it's crazy. It's so funny watching those videographers like hide from polar bears or run yeah. from bears and stuff like that. And the 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 part that I love about it too is I, so I saw a video once of a videographer in the Arctic that got chased by a polar bear because you know he's in polar bear's house, which you expect. And so they have a bear-proof box for this videographer. So in case the bear is like, no, 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 leave my town, they can hide in the box and be safe. And so this person was filming themselves inside this box as the polar bear went up to investigate it, tried to get in, tried to see what was going on. And the entire time, the, the videographer had this sense of, I know I'm not supposed to be here. This is kind of crazy. Not many humans are going to ever experience this. Thought I would document it because this is what a polar bear is looking to do when it's curious about what's showing up in its land. And I, I like that side of stuff. I mean, being able to document insects and nature and have soothing narration over it. David Attenborough. David Attenborough. Wonderful human being, Yeah. by the way. Everything that man has been involved in has been great and i couldn't recommend his stuff more it's it's so good and i agree that yeah. that's a really great way to kind of immerse yourself in animals and different parts of the world that you might not ever get to see that's better than going to a zoo and seeing a polar bear do you think a polar bear should live in san diego or denver or no. new york no Absolutely not. They shouldn't be anywhere near these cities. Did any of you not watch Madagascar? Do you think they just walked there? <laughs> Do you think a polar bear woke up one day and said, hmm, I want to see the big city. It's like, I want and a 401k. Just... I want <laughs> stock options. If I hang out here, will you give that to me? No. No, they were tranquilized and brought here on a plane. Like, let's say it how it is. It's disgusting. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. So... You mentioned earlier in the video you were going to tell us how you could be an orca ally. <gasps> I would love to hear that now. Okay, yes, because we do need a palate cleanser from some of these darker themes, and we'll be sure to add a timestamp so you can hear us now, like as we talk about the more positive bits of this, because there are a lot of positive bits I want people to grasp onto. We, yeah, I, I agree. Unfortunately, we kind of have to get through those rougher more honest stories to get to the good parts. So if you've made it this far, congratulations. Let's hear how to be an Orca ally. All right. So this comes from a Seattle Times article about being an Orca ally. It was published on my birthday this year. So it was meant for you. Yeah. In the Seattle Times, how to be an Orca ally. They talk about a few things. One is that right now the legal limit in terms of distance that any boat is allowed to be from an orca is 400 yards. So if an orca swims up to something and it encroaches that distance, I don't think you're going to get penalized or fined. But 
in general, 400 plus yards, please. You know, in COVID, we had the six feet. Orcas need at least 400 yards. And, at least. And for recreational boats, and this will be effective January 2025, which is in a year and a half, that distance is now going up to a thousand yards. So you can give your little thousand yard stare at nature. <laughs> can I just say something? Because I'm notoriously just a little rough with math. Mm-hmm. How does one calculate and understand how far away that is? Is it, do captains, I assume, just kind of know that? I would imagine that there is some sort of either intuition around it. Um, I've also seen viewfinders, and then you can also use radar to um, okay, so be able to approximate it. They'll have the necessary tools. Especially if you're in a, a commercial operation, I would imagine you'd have a lot of the necessary tools. I'd hope so. And so, oh, Prue's being really silly right now. Um, but then I also learned that commercial whale watching boats have to keep a thousand yards from orcas for nine months of the year. And then there is a period of time where orcas are a lot more social. They Probably make in their a lot breeding. More, mm-hmm. And so that's when usually whale watching uh, tourism is at its peak. And that's where it goes down to the 400. But what they're saying in the Seattle Times is, that the consumer or the people can say it should be a thousand yards all the time. And they can start to pressure businesses to say, hey, thousand yards all the time. Thousand yard stare is good enough for me. Because let me tell you something, these these fish, they're pretty big. You don't need to get that close. You can see them. And also for someone who's been on a tour like this, one, you're lucky if you even see one. That's not a guarantee. And two, if you do, you mostly just see maybe a fin, you might see their tail, and it's really cool if they jump out of the water, in which you see the entirety of their body. You don't need to be up close and personal, see their little eyes, see if they have some acne marks, like, If they got something in the teeth. Yeah, maybe they don't want to be that close to you, like, they don't want their picture taken that close. Do you want your picture taken that close? I should figure out what the the human equivalent of a thousand yards is if we scale the two. Yes. I'll throw a number up right here for what that human distance is. That is the only time that I would be comfortable with someone taking my photo. Exactly. A thousand yards, please. (laughs) Um, And so we talked about earlier that because when we deal with stories like this, we think about all of the sad bits, but then... I think it's really important to identify what are the specific threats we're talking about. Because if you know your enemy, you can... You can beat them. You can beat them. So for orcas, there are two things that threaten them probably the most. One is the noise pollution, which we talked about. That's why it's important for these boats to maintain a thousand yards. Boats are really noisy. And also sound is much louder and travels further underwater. So as much as you want to say, oh, the boat's not that noisy on the surface, guess what? Underwater, it's screaming. It's so, a whole different story. And it's story. probably registered at registers at a different frequency than humans even get. You ever for anyone that's curious, just listen to whale noises on YouTube. They're everywhere. They there's a whole different range that we can't even comprehend that they use. Like talk about some vo- some pipes, some range. Whales got it. Um and then the Final thing that I want to leave us with for how to be an orca ally is you might be saying, oh, 
if I can't see orcas ethically from a boat because of the noise pollution, what, where do I get to see these little guys? Not so little guys. And I have a few, I have four locations that you can see orcas as suggested by the Seattle Times. One is Lime Kiln Point State Park. The second is San Juan Islands. Third, Alki Beach in Seattle. And then fourth, Iceberg Point on Lopez Island. So those are some locations where you can see these orcas from land. And, and that's just local to us. If yeah. you live on a coastline somewhere, look it up in your area. Or if it's not orcas, it'll be something else like mm -hmm. dolphins or maybe other whales or little seals. Who knows? Yeah. If you want to see that wildlife, just do the research yourself. It's not, it's not hard. I highly recommend people use local government websites when trying to find what wildlife is in their area. I especially like referring to NOAA fisheries, so N-O-A-A, -A, so that's the National Oceanic and Aeronautical Administration. That sounds right. And or atmospheric, something like that. But they do tons and tons of great research, and they have so many helpful guides for silly people like us that don't know that much about marine biology, so we can at least dip our toes in with what's going on in our local environment and ecosystem so highly recommend that there's so many great resources out there and we'll link a lot of those below in the show notes for you all and if you're ever bored and feeling sad just youtube's got a gajillion nature documentaries i love the nature dogs they are so good and they're free well and also netflix has a new one maybe not so new that we've been wanting to watch it's like babies in the wild Wild babies yeah nothing can melt your heart quite like wild babies nothing can melt your heart quite like little little babies out in the wild so now we've learned about what's been going on with the orcas what happened with tokate and how to be an orca ally let's get into the the silly bits here because i know you have some fun little videos prepared for us one of my favorite things in the world is when animals interact with people which is part of why i love our pets so much yes and we have a new one featured with us right now alfie he's usually off to the side he's a little camera shy oh we have some seagulls in the background too those are not our pets those are of the wild we are surrounded by by beautiful animals in our house <laughs> though that's we like, we like it that way. And I, oh, hi there, buddy. I especially like seeing animals that are way bigger than humans interact with humans. I'm sure everyone's read the little thing where elephants think that humans are cute. Yeah. And little bits like that. So I do want to talk about one of my favorite little interactions. It's the beluga whale that plays fetch with a rugby ball in the Antarctic Ocean. Hi, James. So, for those of you who can't see, this beluga whale is approaching the side of the boat and just brought a rugby ball to someone on the boat. The person on the boat just threw the ball out into the water. The beluga whale goes under the water <gasps> and oh, goes and it, it picks it up. it with its mouth. Yeah, or it just picked it up with its mouth and then it bopped it with its head. And this whole time this boat is moving. So it's keeping up with the boat. It just took the ball underwater, yeah. and now it's swimming up to the boat. Very quickly, I might add. 
and then I think it will resurface right there. Oh, wow. Isn't that so cute? You know, it's really nice when you play fetch with an animal and they actually bring the ball back. Honestly. So to be doing that with a creature other than a dog just has to be so fun. Yeah. Not many people can say, like, hey, what do you do this weekend? Oh, I was playing fetch with the beluga whale. No big deal. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I like that a lot. It's one of my favorite videos out there. What I love about that video is we can actually see these animals in the wild playing with a ball. Because normally when we see it, they're in a tank, right? That's part of their act in SeaWorld to bob the ball up with their nose or whatever. But in this, it's like, yeah, this is actually part of what they like doing. And that's a really, really fun way for humans to interact in the wild in a non-harmful way. So, I mean... Are all beluga whales going to play fetch with you? No, that's not what we're saying. (laughs) But if a beluga whale starts to initiate a game with you, don't be surprised. Like, bring bring a ball on a boat, just in case. Just in case. Pack it as an essential. I love, though, how games and play are exhibited across all animals. I, I mean, I can't say actually all animals, but it seems like most of them have fun little games that they play with each other. Like, just look at dogs at the park. They have rules to those games. They're playing around. When someone messes up with the rules, they get snappy about it. It's the same sort of stuff that we do when we're like, oh, we're playing basketball. We are playing soccer. They got games. Or even for us, like the New York Times games. Exactly. Because I think, I mean, being playful and having fun is something that is not limited to humans. It's an experience that all life forms have, especially with like the younger babies. Like we see wolf pups playing with each other all the time and stuff like that. And I think that's really fun to see. It's a big part too of learning and growing with social behavior. I mean, as you said, it's pups that are playing. It's normal for kids to play. And I think it's becoming more normal for adults to play too. I know that you have one more story to share with us about some animals in the sea that we originally thought we knew a lot about, but now we're probably incorrect. Yes. So this story comes out of some research that just wrapped up. They finished, they published what they had, and it's about octopi. So back in 2019, there was a colony of octopi discovered which is weird because up until that point, we thought that they live more or less alone for extended periods of time. And they studied this colony. They learned that this colony exists in a part of the ocean that has a thermal vent from an old volcano. So the water's warmer. And they learned that it cut the time from octopus egg to birth in half. Normally it's a four-year process. Which is crazy how long that takes. And I think it cut it down to two. So that's why the research also was very long. They're trying to probably figure out what this sort of life cycle is like. And it's very likely that this is not the only colony of octopus in the ocean. So Really cool, fascinating research. Entirely changes the way that we should think about octopi. 
And for anyone that knows just how smart octopus can be, I think it, it just lends itself to like a fascinating space to think about. We don't know that much about the ocean. We really, I mean, that. we've barely explored it. There, so how could we? There's uh, some people will cite, and I don't know how accurate this is, but we know more about space than we do about the ocean. And I believe it because it's easier to look up into the sky than it is to dive in the water. Exactly. Especially, well, I was going to say, especially because we can't breathe underwater, but we can't breathe in space either. So, no, but we can point a telescope up there. We can. We can see light. We can light. see it. Yeah. Right. We're more visual creatures. So, what I think is really cool about that little story in particular is how wrong humans were about these animals because i mean there's been so many movies and research and just they're a popular animal everyone mm -hmm. kind of knows about them and for pretty much everyone to believe that these were solitary creatures and then one discovery saying mm, actually that's incorrect to kind of change everything is really cool if you like the show so far be sure to follow us on tiktok and instagram at can i tell you something podcast that is can i tell you smth podcast thank you so if we relate that back to the orcas and kind of everything we've talked about in this episode is that it's a good thing to challenge what is commonly believed, specifically about animals and their rights and how they're treated. And if there's anything you take from this episode, I really want it to be that, is that stay firm in the beliefs and values you have, because even if they're not, I don't know, in vogue right now, maybe in a few years they will be. And you could be part of making that a possibility. Yeah, I like that. You either get Thanks. with it or get out of the way. Just <laughs> let these poor little guys and gals go swim where they should. Get them out of tanks. How would you feel if you were in a tank for 53 years? I wouldn't like it. Exactly. Not one bit. And you weren't even being paid for it. Yeah. And I was told to perform. Yeah, I'd be dead inside so quick. Exactly. Just a little basic empathy right there. That's all it really takes is empathy, understanding that we are not above or below these animals. We are all the same and we should be treated that way. And we haven't even begun to talk about the way plants communicate. You know, I think that would be a fascinating follow-up or yeah. maybe, I don't know, in a couple months to this episode because... I'd love to do that with you. Yeah, let us know what you all think because there's been some really cool research coming out about that. And it's it's interesting because a lot of like vegetarians like myself or vegans are, I don't know, it's like it's something to think about now. And yeah. so I'd love to learn more about that. So let us know if you're interested in learning about Plant feelings. Plant feelings and the way that plants communicate. And yeah, they're very much alive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what did you learn from this episode? This episode, I think, really reaffirmed a lot of my feelings around nature and where we exist within a broader ecosystem. It's reminded me of two things. One is the potential harm that people cause to wildlife every single day. But it also reminds me of the seemingly simple, insignificant internal changes 
and behaviors that we can think about that might have a huge impact on ecosystems in the future. To be honest, we're not going to fix our environment overnight. I don't think anyone was thinking that that was going to happen. But it takes people looking beyond their own generation, leaving the earth better than we found it, being able to risk things personally for the greater good of humanity and for life. Because as far as we know, we're the only life that we've seen is on this rock. Right. And so we might as well take care of it the best we can. Just because we mutated our genes so far that we ended up taking things from a lot of wildlife doesn't mean that we can't give some back now. We have the power to. We have incredibly smart people working on this one specific problem. Some of the greatest minds to ever exist with access to such a vast amount of information that I, I have a lot of faith that people can figure this out. And we do so by continuing to love and engage with nature and realize where we exist in that space with nature. And doing so respectfully. Like yes. we prefaced in this yeah. episode, but I have to, have to say it because you course. just never know. So I hope that everyone watching enjoyed episode nine of the Can I Tell You Something podcast. I think in the future, I kind of want to dive into this subject a little bit more and go just like full philosophical read on it. So let us know if that would be of interest to you because I know it would be of interest to me. Yes. Thank you all so much for joining us on this wonderful aquatic journey. Yes, the revenge of the sea. Revenge of the sea. But until next week, we will see you on another episode of the Can I Tell You Something podcast. All right. Bye. Bye.